You are in your Bibles. You are in Amos 8, Matthew 16, James chapter 2. And let's again go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we are humbled, Lord, to be in your house. And we're humbled, Lord, to be in the presence of such a powerful word. Lord, your word has the power to create something out of nothing. And Lord, as we present ourselves to you, we present ourselves as nothing. And so we're praying, Lord, that you take the things that we hear, read, and study this morning, that your spirit would interpret, give understanding, and apply them to us, that we would be changed, Lord, not just in what we know, but in who we are and what we do. So would you please take this time, Lord, and use it for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, my daughter was sitting at the dining room table and she was reading the latest issue of World Teen Magazine. And the image that was on the page caught my eye. It was of a wee little man suspended between two buildings in downtown Chicago as he walked on a high wire between the two. And so I looked over and I asked, what is that? And I came to discover that the man's name was Nick Walenda. He's a seventh generation acrobat who specializes in the high wire uh, walking. He is the only man to ever cross the Grand Canyon on a high wire. If you've ever been there, I mean, I can imagine that's probably pretty scary. He's also the only man that's ever done the same thing over Niagara Falls. Again, probably a very scary thing. And he's currently working on permits to do it between two uh, sky rises in New York City, which I imagine um, it's probably easier to walk the tightrope than it is to get the permit for that. But I uh, learned a little bit about Nick Walenda, and I found out that me and him actually have quite a bit in common. Not only do we have the same first name, but we were also born 25 days apart. We're the same age and just 25, years, uh, 25 days different in our birthday. Uh, we were both married in 1999. We're both still married to uh, the same woman. You, not, the, not the same woman, but, you, you know, the, he's married to his, I'm to mine. You know, you know not that much in common. You know. We are both born-again Christians, and we both pray while we're working. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then finally, and I think this is the thing that I think we have the most in common between the two of us, is that we both walk tightropes for a living. And uh, his, his is physically, mine is kind of more spiritually. But, but I really believe that um, his is actually easier than mine, his tightrope walking. And, and the reason for that is this, is that if he slips, he's with Jesus, if I fall, I have to live through the shame of it. And you all have to look at me and be like, nah, that, that one didn't work and the whole thing. But what I want to do this morning a little bit um, in sharing with you in this time that we have and the opportunity to look at something a little bit more topically is uh, talk about something that kind of is like walking a tightrope. I want to take the deepest issues of life, the biggest problems of the world, politics, and then God and the Bible put them into a bag, shake them around, and then deliver it to you in the form of a Bible study. Uh, I want to talk about the issue of uh, social inequality or uh, social justice or social injustice and how that relates to us as Christians um, and, and, of course, God and the Bible. One of the things that we are all told very early in life um, when we're just children is that life isn't fair. 
And oftentimes that statement first comes to us when we're just little kids and, and there's just one cookie and we're not going to get it. And, and so our parents, for lack of a better explanation or more detailed at the time, they look at us and they just say, life isn't fair. You're not getting the cookie. You know, we kind of like just turn around and we go, well, life isn't fair. You know, I don't really know if I like that example. And life is supposed to be fair. You know what I mean? This whole thing is supposed to be fair, you know. But then we go to school, and it doesn't take long before we begin to make little observations about facts in life. I remember noticing just at an early age that there are some people that are just more attractive than other people. I remember the first time someone asked me if I got hit with an ugly stick, you know, when I was a kid. And I heard that phrase, and it actually comforted me a little bit that there was a little bit maybe of an explanation for for it. You know, okay, I didn't know that one of those things existed, but yeah, you know, I probably did at some point get hit with one of those and that would actually help me to understand why I look this way, you know, and the whole thing. But we see that and we understand, we come to a point where we recognize that someone maybe that is a little bit more attractive might have it a little better than someone maybe who isn't. We recognize at an early age that there are some people that are more athletic than other people. They can run faster. They have different skills and talents that they can perform physically better than others. There are some people that have higher intelligence quotients than other people. They have the ability to perceive and, and, and to use their, their mind in a better way. Some people have greater opportunities uh, in life. Sometimes they have access to more or better resources than other people do. And then we recognize a little bit later on that there's a, there's a difference in income equality. There's some people that have more and, and they're kind of a, regarded as being in maybe a higher class than maybe someone else does. And then we see, you know, that there are issues concerning race that skin color and nationality can make a difference in someone's life. There are gender issues. Some people based upon gender could have it better or worse than someone else. By country, by location, all of these different things are very real issues that we relate to in everyday life. And eventually, in interacting with all of these different things, we come to the conclusion at some point, if our eyes are open, that, wow, life really isn't fair, is it? And when you put all the cards and everything down, some people really seem to have it better than some other people. Now, if that was, excuse me, (coughs) that's the cue for the guy at the soundboard to go, cough, turn it back up. You know, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but at least it wakes you up, right? Now, if that was it in and of itself, and there was just, okay, things aren't fair, there's inequality, some have it better than others, then that would be fine. But we also have to admit that there's a whole other dark side of human existence that exists because of those inequalities. It leads to violence. It leads to war and tyranny and oppression and slavery and a whole host of other things that that exist as consequences of the fact that there are things that are unequal in the world. And so in talking about this in light of God, I hope to answer two questions this morning. First of all, why does social inequality exist in a world that God created? And second of all, what's then the solution to the problem uh, that that presents? Now, I want to pause right here and address the elephant in the room because I know what you're thinking, especially some of you that maybe are a little bit smarter or have thought these things through or you've lived a little longer. 
is that you're at this point, you're sitting back in your seat a little bit, and you've got a little bit of a smirk on your face, and you're going, wow, look at the young preacher who thinks he knows all the answers to the problems in the world. And you're, you're getting ready for this. You're going to enjoy it. You're like, pass the popcorn. I want to hear what the, what the young man thinks here. The truth of the matter is this, is that if I had the answers to the biggest problems in the world, I would either be a consultant to the United Nations or I would be on a cross in Jerusalem. But I probably wouldn't be here. But in all seriousness, I think if you were to ask 10 different people those two questions, why is there social inequality in the world and what is the solution? You would probably get 10 different answers based upon the personality and the background or the thought pattern of the person that you ask. If you were to ask a philosopher those two questions, his answer would probably be somewhere in the realm of idealism. Well, things should be this way, and if we did this, then that would be solved or this wouldn't be a problem. If you were to ask a politician those questions, the answer that the politician would give would probably be in the arena of legislation. Well, if the law was such and such, or if it was policy that things had to be so such and such a way, well, then that would solve this problem or that problem. Well, I'm a pastor. And so as a pastor, I'm going to take these questions and I'm going to hold them against the word of God. And I'm going to say, what does God maybe have to say to us in shedding light on the reason why these things exist? And does God maybe give us some answers in terms to how these problems could be solved? Now, it's important that we recognize that this issue is not something that's new just in the world that we live in today. It wasn't that things just kind of were going along and everything was good, and then all of a sudden things kind of went sideways and out of balance, and now we have all these problems in the world and we don't know where they came from. No, these things have existed for the whole sum total of man's time upon the earth. They may be magnified somewhat because of the increased population of the days that we live in, but they're not new problems at all. We read about the pre-flood world back in the days of Noah in the early chapters of Genesis. And we see there a world that was reeling from the effects of social inequality. A violence-dominated society and every form of corruption causing every form of oppression and wickedness. We read in the Bible and also in the history books about the problems that existed in the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we recognize that there was racial and ideological tension and inequality that existed that led them to the place where they were ultimately in demise and then when they were destructed by the judgment of God. We look at even the people of God, the children of Israel, in the period of the judges when they were just getting established as a nation in the land. Anytime they would find themselves in a position of weakness, we would see them being oppressed by the Midianites and by the Moabites, taking their food, their money, and their crops and trying to dominate and rule over them, capitalizing on the natural advantages they had in order to bring oppression and tyranny even to the people of God. We read about God's people in the days of the kings. After they had been established as a nation, and settled in the land, and prospered by God, and blessed in their full, fruitful season of their existence. We see that as time progressed, that they even began to rise over one another. And there was an income inequality that existed even amongst God's people in the land. And God addresses it in the book of Amos. And you should be there in Amos chapter uh, 8. And he addresses the fact that the rich 
were seeking to dominate the poor and use their leverage to extract every last bit that they could, even from their own people, using their advantages to oppress those that were under them. So Amos, by the Spirit of God, indicts them. And he says in verse 4, which I think the the PowerPoint starts at 5, so I will read you from 4. He says, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. This is God. He says this, saying, and this is what the people say, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat? In other words, they had been become so consumed, these were the people of God, with making more money that the things of God had become a distraction to them. They just wanted the feast times to be over. They wanted Christmas, so to speak, the holidays to pass quickly so that they could get back to business as usual. The Sabbath day, when everything would shut down, would become a burden to them because they just needed that extra time, if they could get it, to just make more money in some way. And this is what God is addressing, but this was the method whereby they were doing it. He says, making the ephah small and the shekel large. That is, that they were manipulating the currency in order to make it so that they could trade real goods in different ways wherein they could get more for less. They could produce less but make more on it and then falsifying the the scales or the balances by deceit. And here was their motivation, verse 6. He says that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. That at the end of the day, their desire and what drove them is that they wanted to rule over people and make them machines to enrich themselves. That was the desire even of the people of God over, making them silver slaves and service slaves. Now, silver was a secondary um, currency. Gold was the currency that everybody wanted. Silver was kind of secondary. If you had gold, that was something of real value. Silver was something kind of of secondary value. It was a currency. But at the end of the day, even silver only has value if it's valued by someone. Otherwise, what do you really do with silver? You can't eat it. You can't sustain life with it. There's nothing you can do with silver. So if they wanted to sell the needy for silver, what they were doing is that they were making people slaves to something that had no real value, that they could extract the fruit of that labor upon themselves. Even worse than that, not just silver slaves, but they were also making them service slaves. He says selling the needy for a pair of shoes. Meaning that it got so bad, the people just wanted to keep their jobs, not because they were even getting any income from it, but because of the services that would be provided them for keeping it. Hey, just keep this job, we'll make sure you get a new pair of shoes every year. And for some people, they would become so poor that it was worth it to them to keep that job just for the benefits that were attached. I believe we live in a society today where these things are already beyond true. I mean, if you look at the system that we operate in, even here in the United States, it's even worse than what's described here. Because we're not silver slaves, we're paper slaves. When you really consider what we give the bulk of our strength and energy to receive, it has absolutely no value at all. Now, our currency used to be backed by silver, but now it no longer even is. If you look at the top of a dollar bill and see what it says... It says Federal Reserve note that this tender or um, paper is legal tender for all debts, public and private. You know what that means? It means this is worth absolutely nothing. 
It's not even backed by silver. It means that the ink on this paper is actually worth more than the paper itself. And that's what we're working for. You know what it equates to? It's Chuck E. Cheese tickets. That's what it is. Have you been there? Have you seen what happens at Chuck E. Cheese? You go there with a $20 bill and you get a roll of quarters and you pump it into a skee-ball machine. 500, yeah, that's a good one, you know. And it starts to spit out tickets. And jackpot after jackpot, you go, and a a crowd of kids gathers around and they go, whoa, look, come over here, look, look, Rocky's dad is killing it at skee-ball, you know, or something. And the pile of tickets grows and the kids, their mouths salivate as they go, wow, look how good he is. Look at how much he's making. Look how much he's got. And then I take my big, thick stack of neatly folded tickets and I take them to the ticket muncher and I put it in. In the number, you watch it count. It's just sucking. And the kids are going, whoa. Hits 1,000. It hits 2,000. It hits 3,000. 3,653 tickets. And the kids go, whoa, I've never seen so many tickets. And then you take that paycheck and you go over to the redeemed counter and you say, I want a gumball. I want one of those slimy hands that sticks to the wall. I want a spider ring. And I want one of those plastic sets of jacks. That's what I want. And I'll have 50 tickets left over. And I'll take a little bracelet from my daughter. Do you know how much that little slimy hand and that little box of jacks and the rubber ball and the spider ring cost you? It costs you like 50 bucks. It's not worth it. It's a lie. But do you realize that Monday morning when you go out and you wrestle with Route 9 traffic or wait in line on the Tacana to clear that thing to get to the job that you're going to, we do the same thing in our society. We give the bulk of our energy for something that really at the end of the day isn't worth anything. It's perceived to be worth something and it's still accepted. But if you have a whole bunch of those tickets saved up, and the whole system goes kaput, do you know what that stack of paper that you have is worth? Chuck E. Cheese tickets. Same exact thing. Silver slaves. Service slaves. I can't leave this job. The benefits are too good. See, they had learned how to oppress the poor by selling them their services for something that means and is worth, at the end of the day, absolutely nothing. It has perceived value but it really doesn't satisfy. And so there was this oppression that existed and it exists uh, even into the the day that that we live in. So the question is, why does a good God allow this? And that's just one example, and we could take it into any arena that we want and see where people are oppressed because of this issue of inequality. How does a good God allow this to exist and why does he let it persist? Well, the answer to that goes way back to the very beginning itself. When God made man, the first man, Adam, among the things that God did not equip man for was the capacity to govern himself. God did not equip equip man, you and me, with, first of all, unlimited knowledge. We don't know everything. Is there anyone in here that actually knows everything? In the first service, a couple people actually did raise their hand. You guys are way better than first service. I think that person wasn't listening and just thought, hey, oh, I better respond, you know. But there's not one of us that has all the facts about every situation to be omniscient in that way of knowing everything. The other thing that not one of us can do is see the future with any degree of clarity or accuracy. We don't have that ability. 
And that right there makes us incapable of self-governing. We don't have all the facts and we can't see the future. And so God didn't equip man with the tools that were necessary to govern himself. God made us to be in a relationship with him who does know everything and who can see the future and that we would rely upon him for all of our needs and that he would be the Lord of our lives even as he is the Lord, our creator. That was what he intended. But when Adam partook of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, two things happened. Number one is that he became sin-saturated. He disobeyed God, and thus the word that God gave is that in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And sin, or a sinful condition, became the platform or the operating system through which man would exist. And what that made him was intrinsically selfish is that we are self-consumed, we are self-absorbed, and we live in an egocentric universe, meaning that everything now revolves around me. I'm number one, and everything else comes second. And that's the condition that we all find ourselves in today because we are descendants of Adam. That's just the way it is. But the second thing that happened when Adam partook of that fruit is that he removed himself from being underneath the governance of God, and he became the authority over himself. So now what you have is you have a sinful, fallen, intrinsically selfish man who's now responsible to govern and rule himself. And when you put those two things together, it is an absolute disaster. And so since that time in the Garden of Eden, even to the present day, Man has been in that condition of saying, God, we've got it from here. And God has said, okay, show me what you got. And God has allowed for the past 6,000 years man to self-govern or self-rule. And so the result of that is that there have been many forms of government that have been tried, but that they all ultimately fail. Because at the end of the day, no matter how good it might be or how creative or how much it might cover all the bases, in the end, there's always going to be corruption and greed. There's always going to be inequality and then oppression that will result in war, violence, and ultimate collapse. And every form or attempt that man makes to try to rule over himself will ultimately lead to, you ready for this? Revelation chapter 19, the Battle of Armageddon where finally everyone says, you know what, get rocks, get your guns, get whatever you've got, go to Megiddo, we're going to have this thing out, and the last man standing wins. And that's going to be the result of every attempt of man to try to rule over himself. Now listen, there have been several forms of government in human history that have arisen, that have worked for a season, and that have seemed successful. But they all have a common denominator, and that's this, is that they operated in a generation or a set of generations where the people were in submission to God, meaning that God was placed over those systems. I think of the monarchy of Israel's glory days under David and Solomon when there was so much wealth in Jerusalem that if someone saw a rock of silver on the ground, they would just kick it into the gutter because silver was just worth nothing because of the amount of gold and the prosperity that there was. Everyone had enough and to abound. 
And there was no oppression. There was a time of great rejoicing in those days. And everyone said, see, this is it. We've done it. We've worked it out. This is how it works. It's a monarchy. But ultimately, the system began to fail. Because a few generations after David and Solomon came and the people were no longer under the lordship of God, there was a power vacuum and the system became too top-heavy and it collapsed. It didn't work any longer, God no longer being the source. I think of the early church that operated under a form of socialism and it seemed successful. It was successful for a season. The Bible says that no one considered anything that he had to be his own, but they had all things in common. And and there was rejoicing. It says that they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart from house to house. And no one ever had a need. They didn't consider the things to be their own. That's the way it was. But it didn't last long. It began to fail. Because as the Lord was kind of, you know, taken out of that system, or as their reliance upon the Lord became less, the corruption of man began to come in. And the result of that is that what once started as a willingness in the heart of people to share and to give became a covetousness in the heart of some and a sense of entitlement and thinking, well, you owe me something now because this is the system where under we are operating. And so it went from a feeling of, hey, what's mine is yours, to a feeling of, hey, what's yours is mine. And so you better pay up. And that system ultimately failed, and it failed pretty miserably when it did, when God was no longer at the center of it. I think of our republic, the United States of America. And I purposely say republic and not a democracy, because we are not a democracy. We have free and democratic elections, which means that By majority rule, elections are held. But we're not a democracy wherein the laws are made by the majority vote. We're a republic, meaning that we stand upon, we're founded upon a constitution. And the the job of our elected leaders is to defend the document that is to be the law of the land. That's the republic on which we stand. And I think of the glory of it, and you all know it because we partake of it every day. We understand what our government has been and what it has done and what it's allowed us to be in the world as an influence and what it's allowed us to enjoy. And some could look at that and say, that's it. They nailed it. A constitutional republic like the United States of America, that works. It works when it's in submission to God. But once it no longer is in submission to God, then it begins to fail like all the others. And the fruit of that is what we are experiencing and watching happen in our very midst, even to this day. I have a quote here from George Washington. It was given at his inaugural address in New York City on April 30th, 1789. I just want to read you this small excerpt from it. Listen to what George Washington said, first president of the United States. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore The invisible hand, speaking of God, which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. We ought to be no less persuaded that the smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And since the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty 
and the destiny of the republic model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps finally, staked on the experiment. And to bring the language of that day into modern terms, what George Washington was basically saying is that we have seen the hand of God in establishing this nation and making it what it is and the future blessing that it it holds for our future generations. But in the day that we turn our back on him, we can no longer expect that the smiles of heaven will continue to prosper a nation that removes God from his central place as the Lord of that nation. It's an experiment. That's what he said. Time will tell. And thus we look in our generation and we see the removal of God from almost every aspect of our life and government and we see what happens to a people and a society when that takes place. The point is this, is that every form of human government will ultimately fail unless God is the head of it. And even if he is, unless there's a continual revival and a continual placing of God as that Lord by every successive generation, that society cannot stand. Now, the greater problem in the garden that took place when Adam uh, partook of that sin was not the self-rule of saying, God, we've got it from here, but it was the sin that was brought upon man. That when man was made intrinsically selfish, it meant that sin would always come out and be on top in the end, as long as sin exists in our flesh. Though it be suppressed for a generation, though it be denied, though it be legislated out or idealized away, sin will always come out. Have you ever noticed that yesterday's protesters are today's politicians? Sometimes I go to the Poughkeepsie Library to study and prepare because um, it's, I find a quiet place there. There's a couple of rooms that just it's great to go into, big open spaces. And I don't know the name of one of the rooms, but there's a big table in the middle of the room, and the walls are just lined with decades upon decades of life magazines in big binders. And you know, you don't, you're not distracted by the covers. You just see the binders. But sometimes when I need a little reprieve, I'll grab one of those from 50 or 60 years ago and just start looking at it just to see what was going on back 50, 60 years ago. And I'm always amazed when I look at the pictures of the Vietnam War protests and I see the faces of those that were protesting in those days. And what I recognize is that those faces that were protesters then, they're the politicians now. The ones that were saying, no more war, we need, we need peace. And that led them into the political arena. Now those are the very ones that today the protesters are saying, get them out. Because we don't want any more war. We need peace. The point is that sin in man is always going to bring out sin in man. And that's the reason why we see the problems in the world that are there. Because sin does not allow man to indefinitely look past self. And so the root of the issue in inequality in the world is the sin that dwells in man. Now, God never allows a problem to go unsolved. When there's a problem, God always presents a solution. So what is the solution? And for that, I've asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 16, this most incredible passage of something that took place during the life and ministry of Jesus. It's Matthew chapter 16, and beginning in verses 13 down through verse 18, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples concerning his identity and his mission. And over the course of this conversation, he asks them two questions. And the first one is in verse 13. 
<coughs> Excuse me. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus asked them this first question, and don't think for one second that Jesus is just having a moment where he needs kind of a self-esteem booster here, and so he wants to hear the latest PR and know what you know the, the buzz is around Israel concerning him and his ministry. He's asking with the intent of revealing something or teaching something. But I find the answer to this first question to be very intriguing. You can picture Jesus sitting there in Caesarea. It's a beautiful area way up in the north of Israel. There's a big, huge kind of like, um, you know, rock wall that just cascades up from that lower place there where they would retreat. And there's a river of crystal clear water that kind of flows over smooth stones. And it's kind of like a retreat area, Caesarea Philippi. And as they're sitting there and he asks this question, you can imagine the disciples for a moment just sitting in silence thinking, well, what does he want to hear? Or what, what are people saying about him? And after a while, the first answer comes back in. And they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. That is, they knew who John the Baptist was. They heard his message. They understand what God gave him to be for the nation during the days that he was alive. And when they look at your life, it reminds them of him. The things that he said, they hear you say. The way that he was, they see that same thing in you. So some people look and they say, you're John the Baptist. You guys are kind of like brothers. There's something there that resonates. Well, then the second answer came in. And someone else said, you know what? There's other people I've heard them say that you're like Elijah. Elijah was a man who was kind of a revolutionary. He came on the scene when things were kind of turning sideways in Israel. And he had the boldness to go and stand before a pagan king and declare him to be unrighteous before a holy God. He would stand before the prophets of Baal, fearlessly proclaiming Jehovah as God, calling down fire from heaven, and there was just a power and an authority and a weight to who Elijah was. And there were some people that when they looked at Jesus, they said, we weren't around when Elijah was here, but if we were, this is the kind of man that he was. There's a fire in his eyes. There's an intensity about him. He's, a, he's kind of a loner, but then again, not really. And, and it got to them, and they said, this is Elijah. This is who, who Elijah was. And then there were others that looked at Jesus, and they said, you know what? He's like Jeremiah. And now it starts to get a little bit weird. You say, wait, wait. Jeremiah was sent to a nation that was just about to be completely wiped out in a time when people's hearts were so far from God that even Jeremiah's anointed message wasn't enough to turn them around. Jeremiah never had one convert. He spent most of his ministry in prison being rejected, and he was known as the weeping prophet because things were so bad. But yet there was something about Jesus that when they heard the message and they saw the demeanor and they understood the mission, They looked and they said, that's what it must have been like for Jeremiah in his day. And it resonated with them. And they said, he's Jeremiah. Well, then the answers just began to come in one after the next after the next. Well, some say you're like this prophet or some say you're like that prophet. And the answers began to just roll and roll and roll. 
Now that's amazing to me. Here's why. Because if all of those prophets, all of those people that influence their culture and society for good, if all of them were alike, then it would make sense. But they're not alike. They're all very different. It would be very much if like right now, we were to say, or Jesus were to say, who do men say that I am? And someone would, was to say, well, some say that you're like Justin Bieber. You know, you just kind of have that flavor. You know, you give people the, you know, the Bieber fever, you know, or whatever. When they're around you, they're upbeat, you know, they're happy, it's cool, you know, the whole thing. And someone else would say, no, 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 it's not Bieber. It's Aaron Rodgers. You know how to command the situation. You know how to just go in there and read things and, and, and just make it happen and you do it with style. And someone would say someone would say that. Someone else would say, no, no, you're like Abraham Lincoln. It's a much higher form of wisdom. It's not flashy like that. It's, it's deeper. There's, there's a depth to it and, it, and it, it, it can get things done. This is historical greatness that we're in the presence of. This is Abraham Lincoln. And someone else would say, Bill Gates. I mean, this guy would be successful at whatever he does. And he would just be the the top of whatever field that he's in. You see how different all of those people are? People do that still with Jesus even today. They look at what Jesus says in the Bible. They see what he came to do, his mission, his mindset, his words, everything about him. And people come to very different conclusions about him. Some would look at Jesus and say, who's Jesus? Some would say, well, Jesus was a Democrat. I mean, very clearly, he was for the people. He was all about kind of, you know, bringing down the establishment and, and, and giving to those that had need, being the equalizer, taking them down from the top and raising them up from the bottom. Jesus was a Democrat. And someone else would look and be like, are you out of your mind? Jesus was clearly a Republican. I mean, he was all about liberty and freedom. I mean, free market resonates with exactly what he is. I mean, that's, you just read the Bible. It's clear as, as crystal there. You just look at it. It's there. Someone will say, no, 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 he's anti-establishment. He would be neither nor. Jesus would definitely be a libertarian. He would be the one that would be telling you, get your guns and the whole thing. That's, that would be who Jesus is. Someone else would say, no, no, Jesus is a socialist. Just read the Bible. That's the way they did it in the early church. That's obviously what God wants. Someone else would say, no, Jesus was a king or a monarch. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Someone else would say, no, Jesus is a revolutionary. Look what he did coming into Jerusalem, turning over the tables, throwing down the establishment, pronouncing woe upon the leaders of Israel. He was a revolutionary, put on the same page as Barabbas. I mean, look at what we're dealing with here. That's what people do when they look at at Jesus in the Bible. Now, what's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't claim ownership to even one of the things that these guys tried to attach to him. He didn't say, yeah, I, I can see that. I like the Elijah one. That's cool. You know, like fire from heaven. I like that. How about you? Oh, yeah, John the Baptist. He was respected. I am respected. You know, Jesus didn't do any, any of that. But rather what he did is he followed up their responses with a second question. And he turns it to them now in verse 15. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now it's for another study at another time, but he was certainly not calling Peter the stable rock upon which he would build his church. But rather it was the statement that Peter made that you are the Christ. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm not John the Baptist. I am not Elijah. I am not Jeremiah. I am not Moses. And I am not any of the prophets that were or any that will come after me. I am altogether completely separate. I am the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. I am the one that came to this world to be the propitiation and the substitutionary atonement for the sin of mankind that caused the fall of mankind, which is the reason why this world is broken. That's who I am. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's what the cross of Christ was all about. It was every sin being placed upon him. That he would itemize it and he would own it, being completely righteous himself. And yet allowing the sins of all of humanity to be hurled upon him so that he could bring man then back into a place of redemption, removing the plight of man's fall, the sin that came. And so his salvation, or what made him the Christ, was the reason why he came. And it's what made him who he was. He was God reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the trespasses of man, but owning them, righteousness becoming sin, so that sin could become righteousness. Now, when a person acknowledges that salvation, then that person moves from a place of sinful and lost to a place of saved and redeemed. And it happens one person at a time. Sin solution happens one person at a time. And here's how it happens. It happens when a person comes, first of all, under conviction. They realize or awaken to the fact that they are broken, that there's something inside that's not right, that I am twisted, I'm not right with God, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I am intrinsically selfish, and I'm alienated from God. This is not the existence that I have. It's a conviction. That conviction always then must be followed by a realization of who Jesus is. Is that if I'm sinful and broken, there was a man who lived in perfection. He was righteous. I am lost in recognition that he came to take away my sins because he's qualified to do it. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But in the name of Jesus, there is hope. So now you have conviction with the realization, but before their salvation, there must be despair. Because you recognize and realize that if I am fallen and he is righteous, then if something doesn't happen to bring my wretchedness to a place of his righteousness, then I cannot be saved. And so you recognize, woe is me, what can I do? And when a person is in that condition, and then they come to the foot of the cross of that Savior, And they say, God, I am lost, and I'm in need of salvation. And if there is no hope for my sins to be put away by something other than what I can produce myself by changing my behavior or doing things differently, then, God, I am completely lost. And when a person comes to that point 
of conviction, realization, despair, and then acceptance of Christ at the foot of the cross. The Bible says that at that moment, Jesus, who had been standing on the outside, now comes on the inside. He looks at an itemized list of every sin that sinner ever committed or ever will commit. And he agrees before the court of heaven that he's going to pay the price for every single one of those and allow his blood to cover them. And then he looks at that sinner and he says, okay, I agree. I'll pay for these. It's done. To Telestai, paid in full. And what he does then is he takes that person's sin off of them and he places it upon himself. And then he takes his righteousness that he purchased through a sinless life and then a death and resurrection. And he places that righteousness upon the approaching sinner. And that person now passes, the Bible says, from death to life. They were lost, now they are saved. They were in darkness and alienated from the life of God. Now they are children of the light and they become the friend of God. And it's a transaction that happens in a moment after a person comes under conviction and then a realization and then a despair and then a humble asking for his forgiveness and his salvation. And he removes the sin from that individual. But then he does something twice as powerful, well, I don't know if it's twice as powerful, it's just as powerful, is that he himself comes into that person's life and he takes up his residence within their heart. And at that moment, they become, listen, they become the very thing that God created them to be. And so what he does is that he now works in tandem with the personality that he gave you when he created you and he makes you an expression of himself to the world. What does that mean? It means that when people looked at Jesus and they said, hey, he reminds me of John the Baptist or he reminds me of Elijah or he reminds me of Jeremiah or Moses or one of the other prophets. It wasn't that Jesus reminded them of them, Elijah. It was that Elijah, wait, I'm going to get this wrong, aren't I? It was, yeah, it was, I am, no, I'm not. Elijah reminded them of Jesus. Do you see that? It wasn't that Jesus, Elijah was like Jesus, Jesus was like Elijah. It was like Elijah was like Jesus. Why? Because it was the spirit that was of Christ that was in Elijah making him who he was. It was the spirit of Christ in John the Baptist that made him who he was. It was the spirit of Christ in Jeremiah that made him who it was. And listen, it's the spirit of Christ that lives in you that's going to make you who God made you to be, to be an expression and example of him to a lost and dying world. Do you understand? And so when you come to him in that way and his salvation reaches your life, you become a new person. And you become an expression of God in a way that no one else can because there's no one else like you. And if there was 50 billion people in this room right now, there would be no duplicate because God is that big. The expressions would be similar. The spirit is one and doesn't change. But God made us all individuals. He made us all different. Now, what does that mean? It means this. It means that when you give your life to Christ, you're going to become what he made you to be. What does that mean? What's interesting that one of the examples that they gave was John the Baptist. You know what John the Baptist stood for? Social justice. I mean, read John the Baptist's message. He says, hey, him that has two coats, let him give to him that has none. 
If you're a soldier, don't require more of your you know, subordinates than what is expected or what you should. Be fair. That was the message that John the Baptist gave. That was part of what Jesus is. And listen, there's some of you here right now that God's call upon your life is for you to champion the cause of someone who's oppressed. Not all of us. Some of it's different. But see, do you see what happens now? Is that his solution is that he removes the sin and he completes the sinner, the person who comes to him. And in completing us, he makes us now his influence in the world. He makes us no longer a part of the problem. Now we become a part of the solution. So you say, okay, I get it. I'm with you. The problem is sin. The solution is salvation. But what about the fact that 2,000 years ago Christ died, but there's still inequality in the world today that we live in? How do we answer that? What's the reason for it? Two things, and then we're closed. James, please, chapter 2. Listen to what James says to you and I. (coughs) He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, And there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and you are convicted by the law, as transgressors. Here's God's first word to you and me concerning this. Is that if you and I belong to him, then it should never be once named, noted, or even sensed among us that we in the least bit operate in this manner of oppressing someone else or even thinking that we're better than someone else. God says, I don't even want it named among my people. And here's why. Because it's not God's heart. He does not look at one and say, you deserve more, and look at another and say, you deserve less. He looks at us with perfect equity, and the Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons, and thus we are not to be either. As children of our Father, it is not to be named among us. Meaning that as God's people exist within the world, this problem should never be a part of our lives, oppressing others. You say, well, what about the fact that it still exists? What's God going to do about that? Turn the page to chapter 5. Their day is coming. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, 
which kept back which you kept back by fraud cry out and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the lord of sabbath you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury you have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter you have condemned you have murdered the just and yet he does not resist you god acknowledges the reality of this circumstance within the world but notice in verse 7 he says therefore in light of that Christian, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's telling us, listen, there is a day coming when everything that is crooked about this planet is going to be set right. But the declaration that Adam made in the Garden of Eden that, God, we will rule ourselves, God is going to let that play out until the end. And then he will set things right. So in the meantime, he calls us to have clean hands ourselves, and he calls us to be patient and wait. Because not one thing on this earth escapes his eye. He sees it all. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and that's after everything is all over, and we are in heaven and we're before him, that the declaration of those that are around the throne to him who sits on the throne will be, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Meaning that when we see how everything plays out in the end, we'll consider everything that happened on this planet, both the good and the the bad and the ugly. We're going to say, God, the way that you judged that and the way that you did it was absolutely perfect and absolutely fair. So is life fair? No. Is God fair? Absolutely yes. And he does what's right for us. He works all things together for good within our lives. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, as we consider um, this incredible um, Bible study, Lord, that shows us so much of who you are and sheds so much light on what's going on around us in the world. And Father, we would ask that you take the things that we've heard and that you divide them in our lives in such a way, Lord, that we would understand you in a greater way and that we would see our fellow man, Lord, the way that you see our fellow man. And so, Lord, we're asking for a fresh filling of your spirit this moment, this day, and this year. And Lord, we're asking that as you made Jesus to be the completion of our very lives, Lord, that each one of us would discover what that reflection is now to look like. And that, Lord, as we go forth from this place, we wouldn't go forth as ourselves or of ourselves or for ourselves, but, Lord, that our lives would be newly separated and consecrated to you. And so we thank you, Father, for who you are. And we thank you for Jesus and his salvation. We thank you for the cross and the blood, Lord, that is our boast all the day before you. For we recognize, Lord, that it's in you that we live and we move and have our being.